Well, welcome. Welcome to Redeemer this morning. Happy New Year, if I haven't had a chance to tell you that yet today. But uh, we're just about finished with the book of 1 John. We've been going through it, and we've been calling it the Guide to the Christian Life. And with that, we're, we're coming up on the end where we're starting to get a little bit more uh, personal. And so we're going to read the first 12 verses of 1 John chapter 5 together, and then we'll get into this, because we've got, a, we've got some heavy topics we're going to talk about this morning, but I trust that in the end, we're going to be looking back at this from the finish line and realize how refreshing it is to be a believer in Christ Jesus. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Now, due to our time constraints this morning, it takes great discipline to meet a specific time slot we're not going to be able to fully cover everything in this portion. So I'm going to leave part of this passage to your personal study. Verses 1 through 3 talks about the love that we should have for one another. Now, the Apostle John writes a lot about love. And we've talked a lot about love in this series. If you were here last week, Seski reminded us that love is non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. You are to love. Verses 6 through 9 cover the witnesses that testify who Christ is. Jesus was baptized with water by John the Baptist, and Jesus died and shed his blood on Calvary for us. The apostles witnessed that event that the Holy Spirit had testified. And furthermore, the baptism of Jesus was where the Holy Spirit testified that Jesus was the Son of God. And on the cross, we see that there is no greater demonstration of Jesus' obedience to his Father. When we get to verses 10 through 12, we see a definition of faith. Simply put, it's a true or false statement that you have to answer. The statement is, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. True or false? If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you can have eternal life. The two must go together. And it is not just that Jesus is the Son of God, but we see that God gave us eternal life. That's grace. 
and it is only through Jesus that you can have eternal life. That which the Spirit testifies is left to you to decide. Do you believe? Whether or not you believe that Jesus is the Son of God makes all the difference in the world. And when I say the world, I mean that the world. And we're going to talk a lot about that this morning. You and I live in the world. This world will come at you in many different ways, and it is relentless. The world is relentless, and John points out that the commands of God are not like the world's. The commands of God are not burdensome, but those things in the world, they will burden you. The world is a ruthless place, and and the world will chew you up and spit you out without even thinking twice about it. And the things that the world demands of you are burdensome beyond belief. The world will ask of you and weigh you down and kick you while you are down and not even care about you. You know, we have a picture in the Old Testament of the land of Canaan. And the land of Canaan is like the world. You see, there are some commentators that might argue that the, the land of Canaan is more like heaven. But, but when you look at the land of Canaan, it's filled with Sin, it dwelt in the land and it was entrenched in the land of Canaan. If Israel was going to possess the land of Canaan, they were going to have to fight for it. If Israel wanted the blessings of God, the blessings that were in the land of Canaan, they were going to have to overcome the nations that resided in that land. If you want to experience the blessings of God in your life, you are going to have to overcome this world. And just like Israel had to overcome the nations and the sin that resided in the land of Canaan, so should we. But it's not always easy. It's not always easy, but you can overcome the world. When we studied John chapter 2, we saw John's definition for the world. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, the first thing that John lists is the lust of the flesh, or the desires of the flesh. Now, Eric mentioned John Scalambro, if I said that correctly. He mentioned John earlier. And when John spoke about this passage, he took us back to the Garden of Eden. And he defined the the, the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, as the impulse of human behavior. How we pursue these lusts and satisfy the flesh. Perhaps the most descriptive example I can think of when trying to define the lust of the flesh comes from Leviticus chapter 18. And in Leviticus chapter 18, the Lord explained to Israel about the people that are living in the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan is filled with people that needed to be deposed and the atrocities that the people, the Canaanites were committing in the land of Canaan was so bad that the Lord said that if they didn't go in there and kick them out, the land was going to vomit them out. And in Canaan, we see, we see sexual sins. We see child sacrifice, the infants that were killed. 
and we see the worship of idols. There is a complete emphasis in Canaan on the, temp the temporal and the satisfying of the flesh. But the problem with the satisfying of the flesh is that you always want more. It's never enough. I mean, when you think back in your own life, what are you constantly going back to that reminds you? What sin in your life is there that you crave, even though you know it's not right? What does your Canaan look like? What does your land of Canaan look like? The lust of the flesh is the only place where we find the burdens of the world. We also see it in the lust of the eyes. When Israel went into the land of Canaan, they were defeated at Ai. They crossed over the Jordan River and they came over here to Ai. When they got to Ai, they were defeated. And Joshua, who was the commander of the army at the time, he, he was trying to figure out why. And he falls on his face to the, he puts his face to the ground and he pleads with the Lord, trying to understand how were they defeated. And ultimately, it turns out that there was a man named Achan who had stolen some of the spoils in the previous battle. And when he was confronted, Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I have done. When I saw the Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold, 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them. And here they are, hidden in, my, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. Did you catch that? You see, Achan first saw something he desired. And he wanted it and he went for it. Knowing it was wrong, Achan deliberately proceeds to hide what he had taken. Isn't that like us? Don't we have the lust of the eyes and, and you think about those things that you hide, that you do in secret. Consider those things that you hide from, the things you hide from others. You don't want to be found out doing those things. Why is that? Watch a child. They know what something is wrong because they run and hide and do something. You know, there are a lot of people here who are married. If you are married, what are you hiding from your spouse? You know, technology has created a whole new list of problems for us. And people create secret Facebook pages and profiles to communicate with people. And people they don't want their spouses to find out about. What are you not deliberately telling your spouse? You know, it, it's difficult. I know. I live with six other sinners in my house. It's difficult to live with another sinner. But anytime you have two people together, you are going to have difficulties. You're going to have problems. If you're a young person here, perhaps you're hiding something from your parents. Perhaps you're deleting your browsing history. What, what is in that browsing history you're deleting? What is in those texts that you deliberately delete so that people can't find them or read them. Or Snapchat is something that, that, that has come about and is very appealing. If you don't know what Snapchat is, then you don't worry about it because it's not part of your technology. But those of you that do and that use it, consider why are you using it? It is a very, very 
telling thing about how we treat sin in our life. Be honest with yourself. Why are you hiding those things that you have? You know, the influences of this world are very overpowering. And, and I feel for today's generation because the social pressures with the technology and the social media is far greater than what previous generations have had to deal with. So let me take a minute to enlighten you because I have the opportunity to work on some technology that few people in the world realize exists. And I've studied a few things here and there, and I've learned that nothing in our digital age is truly gone. You know, those deleted text messages, they're still available. Those Snapchat videos are still out there in the ether for viewing. And when you do anything digitally, you are not flying under the radar in some dark web. Those things that you post on Facebook, they can impact your future. You know, I have cautioned my children to think long and hard about anything that they're doing in today's digital world because it can catch up to you. That's what sin does. It, it finally catches up to you. Now, I mentioned Achan and how he had hidden his sin, and the results of his sin had an impact on many lives that were lost in battle in the camp of Israel. But, is, but Achan didn't have much of a testimony among the people in Israel, at least not that we know of. You see, I often wonder, what about people that actually have a testimony? Fellow believers. Another example came to mind. A man who lived in the land of Canaan, he actually ruled in the land. If anyone had a testimony before the Lord and before the people while living in the land, it was David. It was said of David that he was a man after God's own heart. The people loved him and God loved him and God blessed him. He absolutely blessed him. But there is a crowning moment in David's life where it all went downhill. Many of you already know what it was. You see, in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is the account of David's sin with Bathsheba, and that's recorded. In verse 2, we read that he saw Bathsheba bathing. He saw a woman bathing. By verse 4, he's committed adultery. In verse 5, he finds out she's pregnant, the results of his sin. In verse 6, he begins scheming how he can hide this sin and cover it up by bringing Bathsheba's husband Uriah home from battle. He thinks he's got this great plan, attempting to mollify this situation. And, and, and you see in verse 8, David sends Uriah home with food as if that's going to help the situation, but it doesn't work. Furthermore, Uriah doesn't crack and ultimately, David has Uriah murdered. All so that his sin could be hidden. People go to great lengths to hide their sin. They absolutely do. And when David's sins are revealed, it has destroyed his testimony. Absolutely destroyed it. No longer would he be able to correct his son Amnon when he rapes Tamara, his other daughter. After his son Absalom murders Amnon, David can't stand up and correct his son because his testimony has been destroyed. Absalom becomes bold enough to overthrow David and take the kingdom. And David can't do anything about it. So destructive was the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh in David's life 
that within his own family, he destroyed his own testimony. If you think about your life, if you think about what you aren't telling your friends or your parents or your spouse or the Lord, what is your real motivation for not saying something and and bringing it out? Are you hiding it because the world says that it's okay? The land of Canaan loves to have those things showed on display, but the world has a lot to offer. And the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes are very appealing. They absolutely are. But the world is relentless. Like I said, it sucks you back in every chance it gets. It doesn't even care if you are weighed down with guilt. As you go through your life feeling the weight of that guilt, it's going to try and convince you that you're okay. It tells you that there is nothing wrong with what you did. Ask yourself, why am I hiding this? What what is it that's keeping me? One thing I found very interesting in in reading through the, the, the portion on David and the events surrounding it is that those people that tend to have secret sins, they, they tend to be very quick to anger, don't they? I mean, I, I, can, I can even think about times in my own life where I know I've done something wrong and I snap at people. It's unfortunate for my kids. But have you ever noticed that about yourself? I'm, I'm sure you can tell that when someone else is snapping at you. It's almost a defense mechanism. It's almost like I've got to protect this sin in my life, this part of Canaan that I want to hold on to. And it can be very difficult to overcome sin in your life when you try to protect it. You see, John also describes the world with the pride of life. Have you ever desired to be something apart from the will of God? Have you ever desired? Perhaps you try to control and manipulate people. You know, there are circumstances in your life that you probably micromanage and you probably won't let go and give it to God. I know that one very well because there are times where it's hard for me to let go of certain things in my life because I want control. I don't want to give it over. And sometimes, not sometimes, a lot of times, people try to control God. They try to control God and manipulate him as though their prayers or their discussions with the Lord or their Bible study, as if they can somehow manipulate God. That is the pride of life. You want to define your identity in the world, in the land of Canaan. And so you make choices that you later regret or you hide when you realize that they are wrong. Perhaps the world has deceived you into thinking that you are okay. But when you stand before the Lord in all honesty, you know all too well that it's wrong. You know, sometimes there's a status symbol that you want to achieve, something that's important to you, something that you will do anything it takes to get there. People get pushed aside. I've seen it happen. People get neglected because they want what they want and they're going to get it. And sometimes the pride of life looks like gossiping. You know, talking about or sharing things about other people that if the other person knew what it was that you were saying, they would not be happy. They would be quite upset. We need to stop doing that. 
that pride of life, that living in the land of Canaan as though we belong there, that's going to destroy your confidence or the, the confidence that other people have in you, and it's going to destroy your relationships. When John Scalambro expounded upon these verses in 1 John chapter 2, he talked about the book of Judges. And there are two judges in that book that have a stark contrast to one another. And I'll leave it to your own personal study and, or, or even your time with, with your community group. You'll find questions about this uh, in, in your community group questions. But take a look at Gideon in, in, in Judges chapters 6 through 8. Read through the account of Gideon. And then compare him with Jephthah. Jephthah is a lesser known judge, but he's in chapters 11 and 12. Compare those two because Jephthah is a great example of the pride of life. You see in, in, in Judges 11 where Jephthah responds to the people asking him to deliver them. Or in, verses, in chapter 12 where Jephthah is dealing with the people of Ephraim. And you can see the pride of life bubbling up. If you want to see a, a, a true response, look at Gideon and his words in Judges chapter 6 and chapter 8. You can clearly see where the pride of life comes into play. Now, sin is a very heavy topic. So if you would be so kind with me and to bear with me, I want you to do something a little bit unconventional here for a few minutes. You see, God dedicated a portion of the Bible to songs. Songs have long since been used to lift people up and to help them get through some difficult times. And let's face it, life does not get easy. It gets more and more difficult, just as we read from the passage in John chapter 15. We're living in a world where we're battling the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And the sin in our lives is a very heavy topic, one that we become uncomfortable with. I imagine that there are some people sitting out here now that were probably thinking, you know, I didn't come to church, Andy, to have you condemn me or to feel condemned for my sins. And that's not John's goal when he writes this, and that's not my goal this morning either. But I want to point out the reality, and I want to take a few minutes to just provide some musical inspiration to you to help change the tone of the message. Do you ever feel like you're struggling in this world and the struggles are purely felt by Christians? Do you ever feel like there are times in your life that maybe I'm like Asaph. I can look at the world when he wrote Psalm 73 and say, maybe they have it right. Well, as we listen to this first song, it demonstrates the reality that the struggles of this world are as real as ours, and we need to be a light in this world. Have your life in struggle, have your life in fight, have your life made in trouble, have your life made it right. One day I'll be exceptional.
So when that song was written, there was, some, there was a flow as the team got together and was writing that song that came from the writers, and they called it a walking contradiction. You know, this desire to live in the world and be part of it, but also to be grounded in the reality of what, what we should be doing. There's constantly a restless being pulled in the direction of things that we know are contrary to what we should be doing. So this next song that we're going to listen to brings it closer to home. It brings it home with a more personal struggle, but a realization that we can overcome. We want to overcome the world. We don't need to go very far to find the power to do so. Because John tells us that the victory that has overcome the world is our faith. You know, this final song that we'll listen to has some clear references to our Christian life and the struggles in this world. The songwriter talks about the hills of light, which refers to the high points in our life, in our walk with the Lord. But when John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he pointedly pointed to and said that we cannot live on the delectable mountains, but we must go on in faith through the valleys. 
There are great examples before us of women and men who have overcome the world through faith. And that faith is our shining shield as well. So let's go back to the book of Joshua for a few moments because in probably the most famous event that took place in the book, we have a great example of how we can overcome the world with our faith. You see, in Joshua chapter 3, the nation of Israel crosses the Jordan River and they're coming across and the very first obstacle that they, that they come to is going to be the city of Jericho. The army was an intimidating force of over 600,000 people, but the nations residing within Canaan didn't really want to reckon with Israel. Jericho, as I said, is in the land of Canaan, and it's representative of the world. And at the very threshold is this forbidding, foreboding city. It's a challenge. That seemed impossible. What's the biggest challenge that the world has in front of you? What's the biggest challenge in your land of Canaan? 
Before they would begin their conquest of the land, all of the men had to be circumcised. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in the land of Canaan or if I was in that army, I just crossed into enemy territory and I just crippled my entire army by having them circumcised. That doesn't seem like quite the right battle plan. But remember that But what is important to God is not the ability to fight the battle, but rather their obedience. He wants them to recognize what is important in life. So after the army has recovered, the Lord visits Joshua to give him directions for winning the battle against Jericho. And the plan is completely unconventional and counterintuitive to anything that the world would have to offer. Nonetheless, Joshua realizes that if he wants to defeat the city of Jericho, he has to trust the Lord. So as the army goes in, the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant and they come in. And when they get to the city gates, they begin to circle around and the army follows them as they circle all the way around the city of Jericho until they get back to the front, to the city gates. And the army turns away from the city and leaves. This must have been a, a very strange scene for the men sitting in Jericho as they watch. Did they think that Israel couldn't contend with them? Did they think that, that they, they had defeated Israel because of their walls? But the next day, the same thing happens. The, 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 the priests are, are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and they come right up to the city gates, and they go around the city. And when they get to the starting point, they return back to camp. They did this for six days. And on the seventh day, they marched to the city of Jericho. And when they encircled the city the first time, they didn't return to camp, but they went around again. And they went around a third time. And they went around seven times. And the priests, when they had finished marching around the seventh time, they blew their trumpets. The people shouted. And as they were shouting and blowing their trumpets, the walls of the city fall flat. The entire region goes nuts because Jericho is defeated and nothing could stand in the way of the Lord's army. So let me ask you, what was it that caused the walls of the city of Jericho to fall down flat? How was Israel able to overcome the city of Jericho? We read in Hebrews chapter 11 that by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Israel didn't have to lift a spear to defeat or overcome those forbidding, foreboding walls of Jericho. It was by faith. And having victory in the world can only be accomplished by faith, as John tells us. Look, I know that living in this world is hard. God knows that living in this world is hard. We read that. Jesus told us that. He told us it would. Paul warned Timothy... And we need to be warned as well that some will deny the faith. Some will depart from the faith. And yet others will stray from the faith. Paul was worried about the Thessalonian believers. And he, he sent back to the Thessalonian believers because he wanted to know their faith lest by some means the tempter had tempted them. You know, the Thessalonians were living in the world and they had the pressures and the feelings of 
What do we do in the world all around them? And like Paul prayed for those Thessalonians, I want to ask you, what is lacking in your faith that is keeping you from overcoming the world? What is lacking? If, you are over, if you're having a hard time overcoming some sinful struggle in your life, the Bible exhorts us to go to one another. Galatians 6 and Romans 15 both speak about bearing one another's burdens. If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are in this world together and God has given us one another. So go to that godly brother or sister in the Lord when you are struggling. You know, Eric was up here and he was talking about those that have problems with addictions and there's a great need to get together because they can relate to one another and they can help one another. They can bear one another's burdens. That's one of the joys of being a Christian is you have one another. You will find out just how much your friends your spouse, your parents, your pastors really love you when you share your burdens with them. And note there is a warning in this verse. Choose carefully who you go to because you don't want to have them fall into temptation too. You know, there are many people who have gone to someone in search of help and next thing you know, the two have fallen into temptation together and the world loves to point that out. Just look at the news and any time a pastor has fallen, the world likes to throw it all over. It's a very dangerous situation and we should be encouraged to avoid those situations if we can. And if someone does come to you for help, Follow up. Take the time to go back to that person and check in on them. How are you doing? You know, we, we talked about this part in your life. How can I be praying for you? What can I do that's practical to help you overcome? And then there's another point I want to emphasize that there's a phrase in a spirit of gentleness. This is extremely important for those that get asked by a, for help from a sister or brother or a spouse or a child who is trying to overcome some sin in their life. Be gentle. Be gentle because it can be very easy to condemn someone who's struggling with sin in their life. Trust me, I know that at times it's hard to be gentle. I have kids. <laughs> I have teenagers. And it's difficult to be gentle. But when you are gentle... It demonstrates the love of God. It demonstrates it. In your life, you're going to have tribulations. Jesus told us this. And in fact, he told us that the world would hate us. If you remember from the reading from John 15, being a Christian isn't easy. It never was promised to be easy, but we have a means by which we can overcome the world and we have a means by which we can overcome sin in our lives, and that is our faith. You see, your Christian life should be defined by your faith in Christ Jesus. By grace you are saved through faith. 
It is our faith that keeps us. We are born children of God by faith. We stand by faith. We walk by faith. We live by faith. We are justified by faith. We are given a shield of faith to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. We are to have a work of faith. And we are to fight the good fight of faith. We read in 1 John about the victory that we have to overcome the world. Our faith. I want to turn to Hebrews for a moment before we close. Because in chapter 11 of Hebrews, there's a list of women and men who have overcome the world by faith. Inspiration for us. The author put them there and lists them as almost like a, a, a pinnacle of his message. But when he concludes this part of his book, his discussion on faith he points us to Jesus. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which so clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the author or the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. When the world seems to surround you with temptations, turn to the cross of Christ for which he endured for you. When the world offers you the desires of your flesh, turn to Jesus because he offers you eternal life. And when you are struggling in this world, when you are struggling, look to Jesus, who is the author, who is the finisher of your faith. Thank you for listening. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the grace that you have shown us through him. May our faith here be motivated by what he has done for us. May our hearts long to help one another, that we would share one another's burdens as we go into this new year and realize that we are in this together. You have given us one another and you have given us your son. We thank you in the name of your son. Amen.